HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and I'm so excited to be joined by my fellow Eating Matters colleague, Amber Chong, who will be co-hosting today's episode. On the heels of November, which is, of course, Native American Heritage Month, I am pleased to welcome Sanjay Rowald to the show. He is the director of the recently released documentary, Gather, available on both Amazon and iTunes, which follows several indigenous communities working to restore their ancestral food systems that were decimated by North American colonization. Today, we'll be talking about the repercussions of these actions by the U.S. government and the vital role of food in sustaining indigenous cultures and identities. Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Jenna, Amber, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. All right. Well, let's start with, you know, the kind of the most basic of questions. Why did you decide to make this film? And was there a particular prompting event that caused you to want to make this film now? Great question. Well, you know, the the film is about three main characters, a chef from the White Mountain Apache tribe, a young scientist, a female scientist from the Cheyenne River Lakota tribe, and a young fisherman from the Yurok tribe in Northern California. This would have n- never been possible as a non-native had I not had a great group of uh, Native American producers uh, that all work at the First Nations Development Institute and organization out of Longmont, Colorado. They'd been contemplating a Food Inc. 
style movie on Native American food system, something very wide in scope. Mm-hmm. And it so happens that I've done a little bit of work with indigenous communities and I've done some films on food and we got to talking and it just seemed that the time was right. But myself as a non-native, was, I was very explicit that I didn't think I had the skill set to really make a film about a topic that has so much spiritual, cultural, and political significance. But they assured me that they would help me with the access to Indian country and that they would help me uh, to prevent making the common mistakes that non-natives make when they enter into native subjects. And what was your, who was your target audience? And um, you know, what was your goal in setting out to, to do this film? The target audience was just Indian country, people living on tribal land, people of Native American descent. And so the film strikes a very, very hopeful tone, despite you know hundreds of years of genocide, uh, food policy that penalizes Natives for practicing traditional ways of gathering, et cetera. The film is very much one about resilience, about strength, and about the, the notion that there is no real movement for Native American food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. The Native American food systems have existed for tens of thousands of years. And the film was just going to be a snapshot of what's going on right now. Um, so this material, I mean, you you have said before that you thought would have, and you, as you just described, like a more of a narrow audience. And I mean, we don't even see a lot of independent films on the market these days. It's like Everything's supplanted by what I think is a seemingly endless number of Avengers films. So I'm curious about the interest in the entertainment community in making this film and in supporting this project. Did you have particular champions that you that helped kind of um, get everything underway? You know, less than half of 1% of American philanthropy goes to Native-led organizations working on tribal territory. Uh, despite the fact that one could argue that all of American philanthropy comes from fortunes generated off of native lands, including the modern tech fa- fa- uh, the, the modern tech fortunes. I mean, those came from venture capital seeded funds, and those are inarguably link all the way back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and prior to that. So, you know, we we had a couple of foundation champions, but the film I think made an impact because of the, the participation as a producer of Jason Momoa, known for his roles as Aquaman, his role in Game of Thrones. He's an indigenous Hawaiian actor and activist. And although the film doesn't touch on the, the colonial history of food systems uh, in his native Hawaii, the f- parallels are, are, are very much the same. And he kind of took it upon himself to, to be the publicity muscle. But that said, you know, the timing of the film couldn't have been better from a, a public standpoint. How so? Well, of course, the, the, the murder of George Floyd over the summer really made it clear to a, a much larger section of American population that the legacy of slavery still existed within American institutions. And as people began diving more deeply into that, you know, you start pushing back to the roots of the American colonies. It's hard to remember, or it's hard to imagine that prior to 1860, the entire American economy was based on agriculture. In fact, while the Spaniards came to Turtle Island, what is 
historically considered to be the Western Hemisphere, looking for gold, Anglo-European colonists realized that the potential lay in the topsoil, and they began establishing large monocrop farms of cash crops like tobacco, like cotton. Although they initially enslaved a number of Native Americans, they eventually went to West Africa to agricultural communities and bought enslaved people from there. And so the history of exploitation for African-Americans obviously can be traced to the worth of their bodies. But for Native Americans, their worth was never in their presence. Their worth was in their absence. Their land was what the colonial and then the, the, the nascent uh, U.S. economy, that's what it coveted. It needed land for expansion, for economic expansion, for westward expansion, which again was all based on agriculture, for the most part at least. Amazing. Do you do you see that thread running through your films, which which span a pretty wide array of topics from um, running to the exploitation of agricultural labor to the subjects covered in Gather? That's a that's a very, very interesting question. And I, I had never thought of that through line until the last couple of months. My first film, Food Chains, followed a group of migrant farm workers displaced indigenous from Oaxaca, Chiapas, Guatemala, who were working in southern Florida. They're collectively known as the CIW, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and they've they they recently won the MacArthur Genius Award. I mean, their work to transform workers' rights and human rights has been absolutely phenomenal. But my second film looked at ultra distance running, but from a Native American philosophical standpoint. And this film, Gather, looks at Native American food systems. So there is a kind of superficial connection with the Native American aspect. But more than anything else, my films explore the relationship of human beings to Earth. You know, the first film looks at the fact that human beings cultivate the land, which gives us the massive amount of food that we have in grocery stores. The second film, to paraphrase one of our Navajo characters, looks at how running is a prayer. The Navajo and a number of Native American communities feel that when you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're showing them that you're willing to work for their blessings and you're asking them for their blessings. And when you develop that connection, you don't just become a better human being, you become a warrior. And this third film, Gather, looks at the colonial devastation on the food system and how those of us living on Turtle Island not only owe a huge debt to natives who stewarded this land for tens of thousands of years, but we need to look to their communities for solutions that will end up restoring and rejuvenating the land that modern agriculture has pretty much near destroyed. Of course. And so how did you locate and build the relationships with the communities you featured in Gather? And what led you to select these particular indigenous nations? So th that's, that this question is, is one that I was actually thinking about today. I, I, I look back and look how lucky I was to find the characters that we featured in Gather. It's as if you were trying to make a movie about Appalachia, East LA, and Brooklyn. <laughs> three fundamentally different communities with fundamentally different histories and a completely separate set of norms and requirements for gaining trust. So we think of 
Native Americans somehow as, as, a, as a demographic monolith, but there are 574 federally recognized tribes and hundreds of more that haven't gotten that, that political recognition. And they each have their own food systems. Many of them have just completely distinct languages. And so the idea of trying to make a film large in scope about Indian country would have been nearly impossible had it not been for my producing partners at First Nations Development Institute and their 40 year track record of working in Indian country. So, you know, we kind of combed through their list of contacts. And, you know, since we were trying to make a film uh, that of course was about colonial history, at the same time, you know, since we we're trying to make it visual, we needed footage. We couldn't really focus on the devastation that happened on the eastern seaboard in the 16 and 1700s before there was even photographs. So we primarily focused on tribes now living west of the Mississippi and specifically those that had pretty dramatic conflicts with the U.S. military and then subsequently with the, 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 the food system. And we looked first at the Lakota, uh, the tribes in the Midwest who were stewards of millions and millions of, of buffalo and how the u.s government basically began destroying buffalo as a as a mechanism to subjugate these very military power militarily powerful people we looked at the apache in the southwest who also put up an incredible fight against the u.s government and wreaked you know quite a bit of of aggression and hostility um and we looked at natives in California whose history is perhaps some of the most insidious in, in, in the U.S. I mean, slavery of Native Americans wasn't actually made illegal by the 13th Amendment. You know, laws that enabled slavery and forced labor of Native Americans weren't actually stricken from California's own state legislation until the 1920s. And so we academically looked at those sections and, and those regions, but we began honing in on characters based on the trust that our producers had developed. I'm wondering how you were defining food systems in this context when you say there are more than 500 distinct food systems. Can you, um, can you give us an example and, uh, you know, of, what, of what you mean by food systems and how they are different from one another? Of course, as you know, as experts, traditionally in America, food systems were completely localized until the development of the supply chain and ways to preserve and package food. And, and that didn't really kick into high gear until the development of the grocery store system in the 1930s, 40s and 50s and the development of supply chains. The idea of going and buying massive amounts of products from places very far away from their end destination. Now, as it happens, the hubs of these supply chains are all in urban areas and the spokes are highways. Native Americans were moved as far away from urban areas as possible through forced marches, through um, forest removal. They were also moved away from railroad lines, which again, the highway system began to mirror. So they were very much at the end of food supply chains, which is why it's very difficult to get or impossible to get high quality, low cost food in Indian country. And they've had to redevelop this idea of local food. Now, imagine in an era without supply chains, you were completely reliant on the rivers around you. You were completely reliant on the hunting grounds around you. 
and on the top, the health of the topsoil around you. You might have also foraged. You might have also collected medicinal herbs and medicinal plants at the absence of pharmacies, which also run on factory driven supply chains. So when we look at the definition of food systems in Indian country, they've always been incredibly local. And from an ecological standpoint, that has necessitated decades upon decades of careful study and careful understanding of these very localized biomes and ecosystems. And that's resulted in a, in a tremendous amount of diversity. That's resulted in a deep knowledge of seasonality, uh, not just seasonality in terms of plant life, but when it's healthy for animal populations to harvest them. And at the same time, which foods can prove to be medicinal based on the presence of pathogens and other environmental conditions based on the time of year. And so the food systems in Indian country traditionally were as local as a 10, 20 mile walk from a village or from a domicile. That said, you know, with the advent of colonization, the tactic of the US government specifically was to remove natives from areas that they had deep knowledge of, to transplant them to areas that might not have been so productive in terms of foraging, hunting, and agricultural potential. At the same time, they the US government deliberately destroyed food sources and began forcibly removing native kids from their households to put them into boarding schools, which effectively separated them from their language, their culture, and that traditional dissemination of knowledge. So oh, it's a long answer to your food, to your question, but as we look at the food system outside of Indian country, the idea of local is becoming a lot more honed than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. At the same time, our definition of local in the greater American food system doesn't necessitate complete reliance on the biome that surrounds us, but that's the definition in Indian country. Mm. So with that said, when you began this project, how did you define food sovereignty? And in what ways did the development of the film and your experiences with the communities you featured um, impact that definition? So without any, well, without, without really any exception, every single non-native that lives on Turtle Island 200, 300, 400 years ago came from populations that were relatively stable, with the exception of, of maybe Ashkenazi Jews, who every few hundred years were forced out of settlements. Um, the majority of our ancestors were placed or based in specific places, maybe for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And in terms of Darwinian evolution, you know, if you can't survive in an environment, you pass away and you wouldn't pass on your genes. So from a food system standpoint, if, for example, you grew up north of the Arctic Circle and you couldn't digest high amounts of fat, you wouldn't live to pass on your genes or that genetic pool would disappear pretty quickly. Energetically, right? We don't photosynthesize. You know, water, air, they don't give us calories. Food gives us calories. So if you couldn't digest the foods around you, you couldn't pass on your genes. Conversely, our genes became exceptionally well adapted to the foods around us. Now, we, we've all been displaced. 
from, except with the exception of Native Americans, we've all been displaced from the places in the world where our genetic strength was developed. And many of us are just mixes of, of so many different places genetically. So food sovereignty is really the, the establishment of diets that have a deep, deep genetic connection and therefore have a deep, deep cultural connection and that are strengthened by the feeling of gratitude. That's the, the spiritual element, not just gratitude to the earth, but gratitude to everyone who has helped providing us that food, whether they're harvesting with us, foraging with us, delivering food to us, cooking for us, you know, if they're anywhere within that supply chain, you know, that's also an element of food sovereignty. Ultimately, it's the ability to be able to have culturally specific foods that satisfy not only your physical requirements, but your spiritual requirements as well. Um, in the film, one of the, the central characters, Chef Craig, who we are going to do a, um, we're going to have the opportunity to speak with him um, hopefully later this week. Um, but he says colonial violence has never gone away. And this is, you know, seems to be a, a main theme of the film. Can you tell us more about this? And are there particular modes of cultural violence currently that you want to make people aware of? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great, great point to address. You know, we spoke about the, the, the legacy of slavery within American institutions. And we, we, we see that most pronounced in, in the criminal justice system for African-Americans. For Native Americans, again, remembering that it's their land that's coveted. There is mm -hmm. the equivalent of a school to prison pipeline for Native Americans, and that's a food to prison pipeline. Natives are punished heavily and severely for um, breaking fishing regulations, hunting regulations. Sometimes they're punished completely uh, arbitrarily and completely capriciously. For example, you know, in, during the COVID restrictions in Arizona, the, some elders of the San Carlos Apache tribe where we filmed, you know, needed to leave the reservation because food wasn't being delivered there. And so they went in a completely socially distanced fashion to traditional acorn groves. And as they were harvesting acorns, they were given $1,000 fines. Now, these are from economically wow. depressed populations. Yeah. For the Native American men that were on the Yurok tribe, the ancestral guard, as they're known in the movie, they have been hit with hunting violations um, for trying to feed elders in their community who didn't have access to food stamp food or to grocery store foods because of the supply chain issues at the beginning of the pandemic. Some of those young men, you know, now are facing the threat of the loss of their, of their hunting privileges, of their gun rights in California, which will take away their ability to hunt and practice traditional food gathering techniques, perhaps for the rest of their life. And some of them have been penalized. Some of them are facing jail time for supposedly encroaching onto public land to hunt and gather food, even though those rights are bound by treaty. They don't have the money to hire enough lawyers to actually successfully fight those arraignments. So they're going to end up, you know, cutting plea deals. And so that that's the case all across Indian country. 
the, the doctrine of discovery, which people, if they don't know about, should look up. It kind of provided the, quote, legal justification and the religious justification for the colonization of Turtle Island effectively allows Native Americans as, quote, unquote, conquered people to occupy land that they're on, but they don't own the land. And so there's a whole series of issues there where because they don't own the land, they don't have access to capital that other farmers or other companies might have to really take advantage of the value of their land. The government controls most of the value under the land on a number of tribal territories. So imagine living in a place on a reservation that might be one, two or three million acres big, and you're not allowed to live with the, you know, live anywhere except small little settlements. You're not allowed to live in the woods. You're really not allowed to hunt in the woods except when the government deems the season start. You're given rations of how many salmon you might be able to, to harvest in any one season. And you're penalized severely and perniciously if you break the laws set by the continuing colonizing government. So everything in Indian country is set up for Native American failure, for Native American loss of health. And even though this sounds totally conspiratorial, you know, a lot of Natives that were in the movie and that, that, that I've met feel like this is part of a long-term genocide. It's a strategy to continue taking land that Natives are occupying now. I mean, Native Americans occupied 100% of the U.S., now they occupy less than 1%. Wow. Um, well, one of the most poignant moments of the film for me was, and this is kind of, you mentioned this earlier, was the extermination of buffalo on the plains. Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, can you just provide that context for us? Um, tell us a little bit about what happened there and how, you know, it's an example of just an absolutely enormous ecological and cultural loss. Uh, this, this is a great untold story in American history. The buffalo were the apex animal for much of the United States, from Alaska stretching all the way down to Florida. And in the Great Plains, they provided basically the linchpin for all the pollinators, the birds, all of the other animal life, you know, and the prairie grass to basically evolve. And the Great Plains were effectively the third largest carbon sink in the world up until the late 1800s, all surrounding the health and the, and the, the, the movement of these gigantic beasts that had evolved over millions of years on, on Turtle Island. In the late 1860s, around the time of the Civil War, as the U.S. government began trying to push more and more west to open up land for settlers. Now, why would settlers need land? Settlers would need land so they could participate in the economy. The economy was completely agricultural at that point, and so settlers needed land to be able to grow monocrops like wheat, like corn, things that had markets in the commodity section, markets within bigger cities, etc. But the Lakota people who were occupying land that the, that the U.S. government had ceded to them were really an impediment because the U.S. government was trying to strike treaties with them to, to limit their movement and to decrease the amount of land they were on. And so as a tactic, the U.S. government decided, and there's, there's clear records of this in the Senate where uh, a, a man named Colonel Dodge effectively communicated that one 
that one dead buffalo is two dead Indians. The U.S. government began a military and a commercial campaign to decimate the buffalo population, which was taken from about 63 million individual buffalo to about 23, 23 individuals by the late 1800s. Now, as the food system rose and when engines were being developed to mechanize food systems and cotton gins, etc., there wasn't a, a petroleum in industry really to, to manufacture the types of rubber that you needed for fan belts. So buffalo hides formed those. Buffalo fats were used as the first fats in the industrial food system. But this, in effect, opened up the Midwest because farmers no longer had to worry about millions of buffalo trampling their fields. But the result was by the 1920s and 1930s, the absence of buffalo, the absence of healthy prairie lands, the presence of monocrop fields led to a massive dust bowl, which would have been unthinkable to anybody who traveled in the Midwest prior to 1850. And so in the in the face of all of that, Gather still shows us some of the remarkable ways that indigenous communities are restoring their food systems and defining this aspect of their health and of their lives. We see it in the workshops that Nephi Craig and Clayton Harvey led using native foods as a medical intervention. So compared to top-down nutrition campaigns wherein the government takes a prescriptive approach to improving, uh, quote-unquote, public health, uh, in what ways is this indigenous self-determination critical? So when we talk about food sovereignty, we, we're actually talking about identity. And when your identity has been taken away from you literally by separating you from your land and ergo separating you from your food, reestablishing the foods that your ancestors ate gives you a much deeper sense of self, a much stronger um, understanding of who you are and what your place is in the world. Because those foods aren't simply things like Cheetos and chocolate milk that you can buy off a shelf. They involve going out as a community into the forest, hunting, fishing, gathering, growing together. They involve a lot of traditional songs that teach youngsters how to actually identify those herbs, how to properly treat the animals that they're killing with gratitude, with love, with the reverence. And reestablishing those foods reestablishes the fabric that once stitched these communities together so strongly. And so the reintroduction of these foods isn't just something for taste or for health, it's on every single level. You're reacquainting people with the physical foods that their genetic strength is based on. You're reacquainting them with the cultural aspects of food gathering that made society and neighborhoods and brotherhoods and sisterhoods so strong in Indian country. And thirdly, reestablishing those foods teaches people our place within the food system how we're just one element of a massive creation that was developed by you know, an almighty power, the creator. There's many words for the creator in Indian country, but they seem to develop a much, much deeper, much more holistic approach to physical health just through this concept of food sovereignty on a much deeper level than, like you said, the prescriptive 
nutritional pyramids or U.S. recommended daily allowances might might suggest. I wanted to touch on what you just said about the importance of um, education or of passing down uh, agricultural tradition and culture. The film features the work of the Ancestral Guard from the Yurok Nation and Elsie Debray from the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation. It emphasizes how youth are reestablishing their food systems and the ways they draw upon wisdom from their elders. Um, can you speak to the importance of food sovereignty as an intergenerational endeavor? When we look at modern Western society, there is very little, if any, value placed on the institutional aspect of elders. For those of us in Western society, looking at the definition of institution, we're most of the time imagining a brick and, and mortar structure, um, a building that has a lot of staff that's disseminating knowledge in a dispersed way, a scalable way. But when we look at all the cultures for all of us, whether we're from indigenous North America or from Europe or from Asia or Africa or beyond, the traditional way that knowledge was passed from generation to generation was via elders, via people who had spent 60, 70, 80 years absorbing wisdom, absorbing information from a very particular place in the world. And they would begin passing those down to youngsters via lessons, experiences, and giving them inspiration to deepen their own understanding across the successive decades. So in Gather, you know, when we look at Indian country, we were looking at the, the, the still existence, the still extant practice of ancestral transmission of knowledge, and that still comes through elders. And again, it's like when you look at this from an ecological standpoint, the people that know the most about a particular biome or ecosystem are the people that who have spent the most time studying it, the, the, the most number of years, the most number of decades. And so the characters in our film, particularly the young ones, like you mentioned, Elsie Dubray from Cheyenne River, uh, Sammy Jensaw and his brothers from the Yurok Reservation, they understand that if they want to really develop their own understanding of food systems in their area, they have to go to the people that hold the knowledge. And those people aren't in universities off the reservation. They are in cabins. They are in domiciles. They've, they're surrounded by the knowledge they've been studying for decades. And so we see that in the film. We see the importance that kids place on this transmission of knowledge from person to person. And on the flip side, what advantages and challenges do you see particularly young Native activists having to grapple with in a, in a gerontocracy? You know, there's, there's um, uh, expanding definitions of what Indian country means. If you're, if you're Native, traditionally, all of Turtle Island is Indian country. Uh, when I speak of Indian country, you know, I speak of it in the, the definition of, of, of tribal lands, lands that tribes have sovereignty over. But there are hundreds of thousands of natives that live in areas that aren't federally recognized tribal land. Like we know that New York City was obviously once completely native, the Lenape people, Los Angeles, the Tongva, the Tataviam, the Chumash. So those people still live there. And there are a number of people that have that deep native identity but they're also completely plugged in to the political systems 
of capitalism. And these folks have begun to develop really strong ties with people in, in more rural Indian country um, that face the, the effects of these large extractive industries, uh, the extractive industries that are sending resources and revenue to the urban centers where these urban-based natives are, 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 you know, are living. And so there's, there's been this real cinching together of what Indian country means. And there's probably no greater uh, modern example than the Standing Rock demonstrations you know, four years ago where a number of Native Americans from all over the country, from tribal land and from urban centers, all gathered en masse at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota to protest the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And that was a seminal moment, just like Wounded Knee, just like Alcatraz, just like the fish wars in Gather were for earlier generations. There's been this deep understanding through social media, through communications, connectivity, that natives around the country can stand together. And when they do stand together, although they might have very different backgrounds as tribes, when they do stand together for common indigenous issues, those indigenous issues are more likely to succeed in the, in the native favor. Okay, great. We are going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we will continue our conversation on food sovereignty and what you as a listener can do when we get back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away, it also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Sanjay Raoul, director of the recently released film Gather, available now on iTunes and Amazon. So uh, many of the people that you feature in this film talk about food as a vessel of cultural knowledge and as a way of ensuring that their history and heritage won't be forgotten. I'm wondering how the general public, who has clearly taken an interest in this film, how can all of us participate in this endeavor and, in su- and support the growth of Native food systems? That, that's, that's, that's something that we hear pretty often. And, and, you know, to the, to the earlier question about, you know, gerontocracies, you know, we've seen and, particularly... And sorry, one, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Sanjay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when we, when I, we 
think about gerontocracy, what comes to mind for me is like gerontocracy in the form of like our current political system. Yeah. Yeah. That, right. Like that we all as people who are under, I don't know, 50. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that helped contextualize. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> oh, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, with respect to, to, to this question and, and to the previous question about gerontocracies, you know, one of the, the interesting and powerful things about really localizing the food system is it tends to happen on a scale that's completely invisible to the elite. And in our society, those elite are all pretty much older than 50 or 60 and come from a nearly identical Ivy League background um, boomers <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah so when when we look at ways that we can support the native american food sovereignty movement it's it's number one understanding that the current system limits native access to food and land on such a fundamental level and that policies for land access are very different for different tribes. Like for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe that's featured at the end of Gather, they were the first group of natives that, that welcomed the pilgrim refugees and other refugees on the Mayflower to Turtle Island. They're fighting for fishing rights, access to their traditional waterways that they now have to, to basically walk in between gated mansions to get to their traditional fishing grounds, which presents a whole host of problems. Whereas you know, folks on Twyla Casador from the movie, her her land in, in the San Carlos Apache tribe, you know, they have to kind of navigate the mining industry to reach areas where they've traditionally harvested. So to answer the question, it's number one, to recognize that no matter where you live in this country, there's more than likely a Native American tribe within five miles or 50 miles. And it's to understand what policies they are fighting for and to support them. Why? Because their policies will have a direct effect on your life. You know, the health of the area around Cape Cod has always been stewarded by the Mashpee and the Wampanoag. And they understand those systems, they understand the cycles, and when they're given a deeper access to their traditional role of stewardship, when they're given a seat at the table or leadership in a lot of these environmental matters, the land is taken care of in ways that they've done for tens of thousands of years. Number two, it's understanding that there are a lot of native food producers that are trying to get into the supply chain. I live in Queens, New York City, and there's a tribe in the Hamptons in one of the richest areas in the United States called the Shinnecock tribe. Um, it's an economically depressed reservation that's fighting the interests of real estate developers, but they do develop products like there's a, um, a coffee company out of the Shinnecock tribe. When you go to a farmer's market, you know, it's, it's important to understand that there are a lot of displaced indigenous people in the U.S., like mm. Oaxacans, Chiapans, Guatemalan, Guatemalans, for whom Spanish might be the second or even third language. They form the core of the farm working industry in the U.S. They also have their own farms and they're manning a lot of farmer's markets. It's understanding that you can actually meet indigenous people at those farmer's markets. And number three, it's understanding that maybe natives just want us to stay out of the way when it comes to certain issues, particularly the spiritual and the cultural issues. It's important to understand that until the 1970s, 
natives could not practice their own traditional religions without fear of being penalized by the U.S. government. And so there is a deep and, and real, like, wariness of people who want to get too interested and, and people who are too helpful. So that that's all to say that, you know, since those of us who are non-native are have been a part of a system that's created all these problems, um, a, a good dose of humility is also required. Yeah, wow. So, so it's basically clearly no one, one size fits all it's under it's getting and it's like getting involved in um so raising awareness respect respecting the history and educating yourself on the history um advocating where there are and following the lead of um current policy initiatives uh specifically ones that could be local to you and then supporting um you know small businesses that are led by uh, indigenous people. Is that, did I get that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm very action oriented Sanjay. So that's <laughs> incredibly helpful for me. Um, and I always love to, to hear about the, like the policy specific, um, interventions that, that can be supported. So moving beyond this, can you tell us more about the land back movement? Like what's the goal of this and how does it relate to some of the main themes of the film? You know, the environmental movement really took, you know, took, or what was really took life in the 1850s. And it was led by people like John Muir, like Joseph LeConte. And it was under the backdrop of the gold rush in California. At the same time, California's first legislature passed a series of laws that made it completely legal to kidnap, to enslave, and effectively to, to kill Native Americans that were occupying land. A lot of Natives in California were forcibly displaced from the land, and some were displaced with the promise of, of reservation land, which never materialized for a number of in, very insidious reasons. But going back to the environmental movement, the notion there with all of these things happening was that nature was only perfect and pristine with the absence of human beings, with the absence of indigenous people, first of all. And it kind of created this misnomer is, is almost euphemistic that America wasn't um, completely stewarded environment, that nature somehow arose due to the unseen hand of God rather than millions upon millions of planned human interactions with nature, completely scientific, completely spiritual, spanning tens of thousands of years. And so with this idea in mind, natives have been stripped of access to lands that we consider public. At the same time, you know, there's plenty of public land that is being held in reserve for farming, that's being held in reserve for oil and gas exploration, to which natives are given no access. And so the, the tenet of the land back movement is allowing natives to have greater, if not complete access to traditional tribal lands. Um, understanding as well from a non-native perspective that they served as stewards of these lands 
and protectors of these lands for thousands of years. The rest of us have totally messed it up. So maybe we should think about giving access back to natives as something that's actually in all of our interests. At the same time, strictly from an economic and colonial standpoint, it's one of the greatest human rights tragedies and unspoken human rights tragedies of the last 200 years of how we forcibly moved natives from lands that they'd spent tens of thousands of years on uh, to areas that were not traditional to their, their practices and to areas that were pretty much uninhabitable where natives didn't actually live for very, very clear and understandable reasons. At the same time, one of the insidious things is a number of places that natives are moved from aren't used by human beings. They've been reserved as museums or as national or state forests. And we see the effects of that now in California and in Colorado, where traditional forest stewarding practices haven't really been allowed for 200 years. Um, and we're 200 years behind having healthy forests. And as a result, there are massive wildfires that from a native ecological perspective never happened before, are and should be completely preventable and are a result of this idea that human beings, particularly indigenous human beings with a completely different worldview, shouldn't be allowed access to land that we might want to have access to as a westernized society. So would the goal be to allow for the um, for the relocation for these indigenous people to be able to return to this land to serve as economic stewards of it? Um, so it, it, it's it's three it's threefold. It's number one from the the most pure standpoint. It's like give us back our homes. Right. That's an aspect of That's it. That's basic. Yeah, it's pretty basic. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, like, there's no. Everybody understands there's no practical way to like send all 300 million of us non-natives back to the places where we came from. But it's like number one, you stole our home, give it back. Number two. You're keeping us, and I'm speaking obviously as a non-native, but you're mm -hmm. you're keeping us from lands that that we know how to heal, and you've completely destroyed it. So don't just give us a seat at the table when it comes to um, policies around very specific places. Let us lead the fight to heal these places in the ways that we know how. And number three, you know we can do this and we can make life better for everyone. It's like we're at a stage where there is no choice, where the rest of us are struggling to start regenerative, restorative practices. And it's almost like uh, a learn as you go. But there's natives around, native elders, who I imagine just have their palms on their faces going, <laughs> you guys are all children. Like we've been yeah. doing this for tens of thousands of years. We have songs, we have poems, we have, you know, we have knowledge, we have experience. So just like get out of the way. Um, the Absolutely. GAP website has a phenomenal collection of educational resources on food sovereignty and native rights. Are there any starting points you would recommend for someone who has just watched Gather and is looking to learn more about the topic? Yes, uh, 
you know, there, there are a number of great Instagram sites. Um, one of the best ones is NDN Collective. They have a number of great, great resources from all across Indian country. Um, the firstnations.org website uh, has a, a just a plethora of information from academic to place-based to book lists that people can, can use to either begin their journey or to deepen their journey. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So final question. Um, what's next? What's next for you? You know, I don't really have anything planned. I'm, I'm just shocked by the reception that people are having towards gather. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're doing a lot of panels on college campuses virtually and, you know, doing a lot of panels for native groups and non-native groups. And I kind of see that continuing the next couple of months. You're like, I just finished this project. <laughs> I'm going to take a minute and celebrate. <laughs> um, what And what a huge undertaking it was. This was um, such a wonderful film. And uh, I, I would imagine such a, such an asset to the, um, to the community for, you know, raising awareness of these, of these issues and doing so in such a beautiful way. Well, thank you guys so, so, so much. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on this evening. Um, okay. We're going to leave it there for today, but we, as I mentioned earlier, we'll do a follow-up segment with chef Craig from the film. So be sure to check that out, um, as well, uh, shortly. Um, this segment was co-produced with Amber Chong. Show engineer is uh, Jeet Paul, the one and only, of course. And our music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't already, uh, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.